Welcome to Independent Shakespeare Company's Art Break. I'm your host, Carolina Sique. On May 25th, 2020, in the midst of a global pandemic, two very different yet undoubtedly related videos surfaced across social media platforms. The first, a video of a white woman calling NYPD over a false accusation of assault regarding Christian Cooper, a 57-year-old black writer and editor. The second, an eight-minute video of Minneapolis police holding a black security guard by the name of George Floyd in a fatal knee-on-neck chokehold. George Floyd was 46 years old. These videos came to light shortly after the news of Ahmaud Arbery's and Breonna Taylor's unjust murders. Within hours, a gathering of protesters in Minneapolis had met. The protest itself was peaceful, cathartic even. Not unlike those that protested against stay-at-home orders, these folks exercised their right to free speech, but carried on without violence. However, unlike the quarantine protests, police arrived geared up as if fighting for war. They unloaded rubber bullets and deployed tear gas on innocent protesters. Across the country, citizens decided. Enough was enough. It's been a month since George Floyd's murder now, and people around the world are still peacefully protesting against police brutality everywhere, from major cities to small towns. The conversation about racism in America has now extended itself beyond the focus scope of police violence against black folks, and begs institutions and individuals alike to consider how they practice anti-blackness in their everyday lives. This is no different for the arts. Accounts of discrimination and outright racism that Black artists have experienced from large theatrical institutions like Broadway, Second City, and university theater departments or conservatories have been coming out of the woodwork, forcing these companies to evaluate their practices and hold themselves accountable to be better. As a generally progressive career path, theater is not the first business most people think of engaging in racist behavior and practices. Non-black theater artists may hold their black friends, co-workers, and colleagues in high esteem, but do they open up discussions about race inequality in the community? Do they acknowledge and fight against the systemic racial disadvantage black artists have in the theater? Do they advocate for policy changes regarding black artists? Do they recognize their own privileges and discriminatory behavior, apologize and commit to doing better? These questions are deeply uncomfortable, but so necessary to recognize these behaviors and change the theater community. We must make space for, listen to, acknowledge, and fight for black folks. For today's art break, I asked ISC ensemble members, Kearney Mekartichian and Sabra Williams about their journey as black theater artists, from the moment they decided to be theater makers to instances in which they experienced racism in the community, to how they are using their voices and artistry for activism. Karen E is also ISC's newly appointed Artistic Associate for Social Justice. Keep in mind that these are individual experiences and not reminiscent of the whole. But most, if not all, black artists have countless stories similar to the ones you're about to hear. Karen E, how did you get started as a theater artist? What made you choose theater? Yeah, so I've loved uh, storytelling and performing ever since I was really little. I was an only child. I am an only child. So <laughs> that was kind of the way that I would entertain myself and entertain others. I would always be 
getting up and singing random things in front of my grandparents and I would tell these ridiculous soap opera like stories with my barrettes for my hair with my stuffed animals with my uh, brats dolls when I started having those so I've always liked storytelling and performing and my first play I guess I ever did was in kindergarten the three piggy opera and that's when I caught the real theater bug um growing up in LA you know you're surrounded by the entertainment industry and film and all of that I think the first film I saw that made me want to be a theater specific performer weirdly was Chicago um I saw Chicago in the theater when I was maybe like eight or nine and then later on that year, we saw a production of The Pantages with Patrick Swayze, and I remember thinking, like, I love the movie, but seeing it on stage just was so much better. Like, I want to do that. I want to be in front of a live audience and feel that energy and all of those things. So ever since then, I knew that this was what I wanted to do, um, to be a performer and a storyteller. And I've done everything. I've done straight plays, musicals, dabbled in devised things my senior year of college. Uh, I studied, so I was a theater major at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. And it was really great because our program was a liberal arts program. So we had to make sure that we studied theater history. We did tech. We got a full understanding of everything and all of the moving parts that go into a production so that even though we're actors, we still appreciate every aspect of performance. And if you're ever interested in directing, like we know how to have those conversations with our lighting people, with our sound designers, all of that. Um, my senior year of college, I was able to do a thesis production of Entezaki Shange's For Color Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough. And that was something I had been looking forward to since my freshman year of college. I knew I was like, one day when I'm a senior, I'm going to get to do a thesis. I'm going to work towards that. And it is going to be something that this institution that is so steeped in white supremacy and steeped in sexual assault and just the silence and erasure of black women specifically that we were dealing with on campus, it was going to be something that needed to happen on our campus. And it was incredible. It's still probably the most important thing I think I've done as a theater artist as a performer, I also was the dramaturg and um, just the outpouring of messages I received from people who said that it was just something that really spoke to them and resonated with them. It was, it was incredible. And it was then that I realized I can use my art and what I love to do, which is performing and storytelling and writing and directing. I can use that to 
create empathy in people, I can use that as um, an agent for social change. Art is so incredibly powerful, and it has always been incredibly powerful. Um, that's why it's important. I always say, you know, if you're an actor, you really need to do your homework and study your theater history. You shouldn't just be a puppet. You have to know the history and the legacy of the work that we do and um, the power that comes with storytelling. So that's that's why I've been doing it. I will do it till I die. I love theater. I'm a theater artist. Sabra, what made you want to do theater in the first place? And what do you specialize in? Um, well, as an artist, I come from a theatrical family. My mother is a director. My stepfather is a playwright. And I grew up sitting in the rises of theatres. And honestly, I don't remember a time when I wasn't either on the stage or watching people on a stage. And I would say that I don't see myself as a specialist, although I am classically trained. I've done a lot of classical work, a lot, a lot of Shakespeare. Can both of you tell us a little bit about your work in activism? Yeah, similarly to my work um, as a performer, I've been, uh, as some people like to say, loud and hard-headed <laughs> an activist um, for as as long as I knew what that was. I went to my very first protest, I think, when I was eight or nine against the Iraq war downtown, downtown LA with my mom and some of our friends. And we were walking around the neighborhood and um, posting like uh, anti-war signs, clipping them to all of the, uh, all of the polls and things and um, getting the word out. And I remember when I was in elementary school, this one kid I thought was being really mean. And then I had everyone sign a petition saying, <laughs> saying that he was being mean. And then I gave it to him. Um, and we're friends. We're friends. We were just, we're still friends. We were just having an issue, but I did do that. So I've always, um, I've always spoken out <laughs> about how I feel. Um, I, when it comes to my Armenian community, I have written constituent letters and I did an internship in D.C. and tried to get the Armenian genocide recognized um, by the United States government, which it still is not fully recognized at the federal level, which is very frustrating. I went to my first Black Lives Matter protest when I was, I believe, a sophomore in college for Michael Brown. Um in over in Hanover, New Hampshire, we had a big old Black Lives Matter protest. We were walking through the streets, speaking out, um, making our voices heard. And that's something that I've been passionate about for a long time. My, I've also worked, I worked for the Obama campaign when I was a freshman in college, <laughs> which that was my freshman fall. So it was great that my freshman fall, my nickname was, um, Obama girl, because I was knocking on everyone's doors, and I was the canvassing captain, and I was getting doors slammed in my face, and people wrote Romney all over my door and things. But hey, we won, and Hanover went for Obama's 75% of that election, and um, 
2012. So I'm, I'm very proud <laughs> of the work that we did. Um, and as, as an adult, I've tried to marry my activism to my work in um, theater. I love working with We the People Theater Action, which is part of Sacred Fools. We respond to a prompt and we write a very short piece, whether it's I've written a I've written a lot of short plays, I've written a spoken word piece, you can write a song, and then we present them and during the night that we present them or the last couple times we've presented them on Zoom, we raise money for specific causes. And now with everything um, that's been happening and with all of these people who are newly woke, I've definitely been using my platform on social media. I've been using Instagram to post information, post daily action items. I mobilized a lot of people to send emails to help get Brianna's law passed in Louisville, which it did. It passed with a full ban on no-knock warrants. So right now what I'm working on is, yes, expanding my activism to the greater Black Lives Matter movement and this moment and seizing this moment to truly change this system, um, dismantle it, honestly. We're not trying to reform right now. We're trying to rebuild and change things because when the system is so broken um there's you just you can't really reform a system like this in my opinion um but beyond that i'm also starting a document a living document to so that people can report various experiences, instances of bias, instances of racism, assault, homophobia, transphobia that have happened specifically within the Los Angeles theater community because we were completely kind of glossed over by the Me Too movement and all of that. But now I feel like it's time to truly address a lot of the, um, yes, systemic racism within the theater community, but also just specific um instances that have happened to individuals or patterns that occur with specific artistic directors with um, various theater companies because we need to hold these people accountable if not now I don't know when you know so it's definitely speaking to that and that's something that has been a journey for me in college it was hard for me because I was on a full scholarship and when I started to speak out about a lot of the issues that were happening on our campus, a part of me felt, well, I'm, maybe I shouldn't be speaking out. I should just be happy to be here. They've given me so much. Maybe I shouldn't speak out about um, certain situations that happen within our own theater department. Um, <laughs> when we did, <laughs> bringing it back to Chicago, when we did a production of Chicago my senior year, the only role that was double cast was the role of Mama, and it was me and the only other Black girl in the theater department who was at that level, um, who was at that level doing main stages and this, that, and the other. 
we were the only ones double cast and we're very different individuals. She's my friend. So it was weird because we also had to share um, rehearsal time and stage time, whereas everyone else got the full process. It was very frustrating because they don't even double cast roles. They could have just put the two of us into different roles rather than making us share one. And for some reason, people seem to think the role of mama is a role that's only for black women, but that role originally was performed by a white woman. So I don't know why it's gotten to that point, but that's, I digress. That's a whole other thing. Um, but we had issues within our own department. There were issues on um, campus. My freshman year, people wrote the N word all over my freshman dorm cluster. And then the administration didn't do anything about it. We had to speak out. We There were so many times where we were speaking out and trying to get the attention and trying to get um, Dartmouth to divest from oil companies. And it was just, it was always a constant fight. And even sometimes a fight within our own community, within the Black community, addressing the huge issues of sexual assault that we were dealing with, um, specifically with members of a fraternity in our community. Then Black women were seen as, oh, well, why are you speaking out against the community? Just focus on all of the issues of um, racism happening on campus. So then we're not supposed to speak out about issues of assault, apparently, because we're supposed to protect the community and not make the community look bad. So all of those things that I was dealing with in college prepared me for the work that I'm doing right now and prepared me for the, the really awful issues that we don't talk about that are within the theater community. So I've been active in the social justice space for more than 15 years in America um, as an immigrant and a woman of color and an artist. When I moved here, I was horrified to discover the truth behind mass incarceration and um, the injustices visited on communities of color. And I wanted to take action. Um, I started a program at the theater company I was part of at the time, The Actors Gang. And that program was called The Prison Project, The Actors Gang Prison Project. And it grew to become a leader in arts and corrections and also a generator of leadership among formerly incarcerated people. And then when I left after 13 years, I co-founded Creative Acts, which is a social justice arts organization that uses the power of the arts to both disrupt and transform and also heal. And so I would say that my work has required me to engage in advocacy for the place of the arts in social justice locally, on a state and on a national level, including with um, the Hold, Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch Department of Justice and the Obama White House, where I co-produced an event um, about the arts in criminal justice reform. And now I'm writing a book. It's endless as is writing this book. If you're comfortable, can you please describe a few instances in which you faced racism within the theater community? Did you tell someone about it? If not, why? And was the situation ever resolved? What could the aggressor or company have done differently to address this issue? Well, I spoke a little bit about some of the issues I dealt with in college, but 
um, as far as since I've been working professionally, I mean, there's the standard microaggressions that we all deal with as actors of color when, you know, you go into a room and they ask you to be more urban and X, Y, Z. That's the stuff that we deal with on the daily. That's ignorant and frustrating. Um, I had a very difficult experience a few years ago where I was working on a play that we ended up taking to Edinburgh Fringe and the artistic director was, is incredibly racist. He called me an angry black woman. He said that I'm not a real American because, um, well, he just said I'm not a real American and I asked him to explain why and he's like, well, you know, you're, you're just like, you're, you're woke and stuff. So you're not, you're not a real American. He, um, touched me inappropriately and I had to tell him not to do that. He, um, physically stepped to me, threatening me like 30 seconds before we were about to start our show when we were backstage, like in my face, popping his collar. Um, he made a lot of disgusting sexual comments to myself and another one of my um, castmates. And this is a man who has had this behavior for decades. And what I did was I wrote a letter detailing everything that he did um, during that entire process because it was, it was awful. I was stuck in another country living in the same space with this horrible human being. Um, and I didn't want any other woman, person of color to deal with that in the future. So I wrote a letter detailing everything he did and I shared it with all of the theater communities that I was connected to and I had people I knew share it with their theater communities. And the thing that frustrated me was pretty much everyone said, oh, I knew that. That's why our company doesn't work with him. Oh, yeah, I, I wish I could have warned you. I didn't think he would still be doing that. Yes, Kearney, that's been a pattern of his behavior for the last decade. That's that's what everyone was saying. And, I, and it frustrated me because if there had been more open communication, if this had been out in the open instead of people just whispering about it and talking about it, very similar to what happened with, you know, Me Too and Harvey Weinstein, um, then I wouldn't have been in that situation. So right now what I want to do, um, because I sent out that letter and everyone who was a part of the company for the most part left, um, but uh, time has passed. People forget. New people are moving to LA, new theater artists all the time. So, and people unfortunately have very short memories. So I don't want this to continue. And I've heard so many issues that people have faced in other theaters and with other people. Um, I was in, we were getting notes before we opened a show with another friend of mine who's Afro-Latinx and the director told him to monkey it up. Like it's stuff like this that sometimes people aren't really thinking about what they're saying. And then other times people are really being truly sinister and they know what they're doing. And it's all about power. Um, and it's tough. It's difficult being black in the theater community. 
it's difficult being a woman in the theater community. And um, that's not even speaking to all of my transgender non-binary um, friends and what I'm sure they're going through. Um, so there's, there's just a lot of systemic changes that need to happen. So I say like all black indigenous people of color who are artists, I've experienced countless micro and macro aggressions and instances of racism and bias um, in casting, training, production, theater companies. I can remember being a dancer at school and it being suggested to me that I might prefer being an actor as there were so few opportunities for dancers who quote, look like me. Um, in casting, I have been asked to use my quote, native accent or some other West Indian or African accent. Um, I'm British, born and bred, as you can probably hear. I've been called exotic. I've been told I'm not really black. I've worked in places, many places, where the leadership is patriarchal and upholds systems of white supremacy. I've experienced white men taking credit for my work many times and casual racism in places that claim to be inclusive and yet lock in approaches where white people hold the power and make all the decisions. Um, places where due to probably fear and enabling of an existing hierarchy, other artists enable toxic behavior and don't challenge behavior that marginalizes or tokenizes people of color. That is very common. I'd say the most egregious situations I have involved working with impacted communities, with white people who refuse to self-reflect and do the work in partnership themselves. I've also many, many times been the only person of color playing lead roles and then been held up as proof of diversity. And in the same way, I've seen way too many examples of publicity centering people of color as kind of like an outward legitimizing face when those same artists are not centered in the process or casting. I, am, I would say I've also witnessed and been on the receiving end of absolute outrage when this kind of behavior is even slightly challenged or when I've tried to bring in or propose resources that could help make change. As far as telling somebody else about the situation, I guess there's really no one else to tell beyond the leadership who did nothing. Most places that I've worked at, the board are distant and unavailable and separated from the rest of the organization. Um, I guess I can think about one director who did try to approach the subject through devising plays, but she was also sidelined in the end. So yes, I haven't had much success with that. So what people could have done differently is that they could have accepted that, first of all, that their reality is not everyone's reality. They could have listened and used resources offered. They could have looked at their boards and staff and changed them so that people of color have actual power. They could have collaborated. They could have done the work themselves that they demand others to do. They could have been an example, of, like a shining example, I guess, of admitting fault taking responsibility and changing behavior. They could apologize. Other artists could have the courage to speak truth to power. White artists I'm talking about. 
Um, they could have had honest discussions without negative consequences by creating a safe, supportive space and a process led by people who are not invested. Um, they could dismantle hierarchies and create flatter organizations that center those most impacted. They could cast plays that look like the communities they play in, like Independent Shakespeare Company does. They could include plays that call for diversity. They could study and learn how we got to this place. They could embark on a process similar to truth and reconciliation. They could do their work. And also they could understand that by doing that work, it brings joy, not just the fear and shame that paralyzes them and stops them doing it. Um, they could be partners, they could be allies. And by the way, they could still do any of this at any time and be warmly welcomed and with heartfelt um, love if they choose to do any of these things now or tomorrow or the next day. What would you like theater makers to know about reforming anti-black behavior and policy in the industry? Well, the first most important thing that theater makers should know is that, um, and I say this again and again, but I'm going to keep saying it, please don't say that you are doing color blind casting. Color blind casting is not thoughtful. It's problematic. You need to be color conscious. Now, this is an example that I use all the time. When I was studying theater for the summer in London, I'm studying at Lambda. We went and we saw a production of As You Like It at the Globe Theater, the Globe Theater, Shakespeare's Globe. And it was the most um, frustrating. I, I literally, when I was watching it, I just wanted to cry. Um, experience I've ever had uh, watching a theatrical piece because the only person of color in the cast was a black woman. She was playing Audrey, who, if you're not familiar with As You Like It, is constantly referred to as wanton, ugly, slut. Um, she, they, they hypersexualized her more than was necessary. They had everyone else dancing classically and they had her gyrating around. They had her falling down on her knees and, and all kinds of things where no one else in the cast was doing that. Not only was she the only um, black individual in that production, she was also the only full-figured person in that production. So even though she was great, she was really funny, I wanted to be like, yes, girl, amazing. You're playing Audrey, fantastic. I I was so frustrated because everyone around me, with the exception of a few people who were from my program in Dartmouth, who were also just as appalled, was yucking it up and clapping and like, oh my God, this is so hilarious. It's It would have been fine if Rosalind was also black. If Orlando was black, if Celia was black, that changes things. But when there's only one black face in your cast, you need to think about who they are playing and how they are relating to the other bodies on that stage. Because that's what color conscious casting is. Colorblind is just, okay, yeah, we have our one token person of color and it's fine. It's like when you do... The Tempest and the only person of color is Caliban, which happens a lot. You have to be very thoughtful about how the people of color and 
the white people in your production are interacting in whatever piece you're doing. You have to think about it because in the case of As You Like It at the Globe, it would have just been better for the entire cast to be white. That would have been less offensive than what they did. So that's one thing I want theater makers to be thinking about specifically. Um, Thinking about from the start of your season. Don't just make your season, okay, we're going to do one August Wilson play and that's it. And all our other productions are going to have completely white casts and we're that that's that's all we really need to do is the one August Wilson play. There's so many amazing, fantastic, brilliant black playwrights, black works. Um, even if you're a classical company, you can still make sure that each piece you do is incredibly diverse. What you shouldn't do is squeeze all of your diversity into one specific production, because that's not going to lead to lasting systemic change that's like doing a Christmas carol you know every year it's great it's something people are looking forward to it's something that everyone knows you're gonna do once a year don't make your one diverse production just a one-time special event that happens once a year put diversity into your entire season so that's those are the main things I would say um, artistic directors and theater companies need to really think about. Are you tokenizing people of color? Are you tokenizing Black people? Or are you genuinely having a diverse environment? And what are you doing as far as activism for the Black community? How are you uplifting Black voices? How are you speaking to what's happening in this moment? Are you simply just doing productions or are you doing any community outreach to systems impacted youth and families, which ISC has been doing? Like, do you just talk the talk or do you walk the walk? I guess in response, I have a very short answer. If you don't reform your organizations, your theater means nothing. That's all I got. I felt that this was a question that needed more perspectives of the situation, so I also asked ISC Ensemble member Bukola Ogunmola, who joined us in our last podcast episode, what do you want theater makers to know about reforming anti-Black behavior and policy in the industry? I think that the head of theaters should educate themselves so that they can see signs of anti-Blackness in their theater. So educating the person that's in charge would change a lot of the policy. Um, and as much as, you know, put it feels kind of like putting a, a, a Band-Aid on a bullet hole when we say, well, they should do this and we should do that. No, we need to get this to the core of the problem. And the core of the problem are the people. And if we get to all the people, then you know, black and brown people and, 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 and black indigenous and POCs won't have to verbatim tell people how to make changes in their theaters. It would help if they had a person of color on staff 
That'd be wonderful. Um, it would also help if, like, we if if we as a theater community kind of just basically took a class about what systematic racism is because that confusion is also the problem with people not admitting it or claiming ignorance about it or not being ignorant about it but not seeing the depth of it um so education is key education so let's take classes and then maybe have this conversation again in like a month after everyone's taken this class and the final question for Karen as our incoming artistic associate for social justice what can audiences expect from ISC and what are you most excited about bringing to the position? Yeah, I'm really hopeful and excited about this current moment that we are in. There are so many people who are finally awake and having difficult conversations. I've never seen this many people from all different communities mobilized and speaking out about systemic racism and white supremacy. So I think we're really in a time where we need to seize the moment and continue the work. So I'm really excited to be joining the staff of ISC as the Artistic Associate for Social Justice and it's beautiful that David and Melissa want to make sure that the work that we do is not just a statement for optics or a trend. It's going to be ongoing. We are, um, one thing that we're doing that I'm really excited about is starting a coalition of theaters that are for the people's budget and the Black Lives Matter people's budget, which city council has been debating and having um, open meetings where you can call in for this entire month. And they will be making a decision on the whether or not to reduce the police spending budget within the next week or so. So we're going to have a big final push and try to get as many signatures as we can and to show that the Los Angeles theater community does stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. So that's something specific that we're working on that I'm really excited about. We've made commitments to ensuring that the next new play development will focus on and center and uplift Black voices. We're going to, I mean... One thing that I really loved about working with Indie Shakes last summer was my first summer. I'm someone who is also an educator. I teach in different after-school programs, and I really appreciated that ISC has such a strong community outreach program that they've been doing. They've been, um, when we do our Players in the Park, but also we do specific workshops with different groups and um, I appreciate that we've also committed to expanding our community outreach and reaching out to systems impacted youth and families. So we're also going to be reaching out and seeing how best we can support other theater communities that specifically 
um, are founded by and center black and brown voices, whether it's helping them with our marketing reach that we have, helping them with the space that we have. We want to use the resources that we are lucky enough to have to help other members of the theater community because that's what it should be about. So I'm really excited to start this journey and create this position and see all of the possibilities and to continue lasting change and ongoing activism because that's what it's about. People, I I already see people who are tired. They're tired of talking about this. They want things to go back to normal, but normalcy is very toxic for black people. It's very toxic for a lot of people of color. So what we need to do is work on changing this world for the better. And I'm excited to do that with Indie Shakes. It's not a far-fetched statement to say that the coronavirus pandemic has forced the world to take a closer look at our mortality in a way that we never have before. Before the pandemic, we didn't give a second thought about multiple trips to the grocery store, carrying around hand sanitizer, or even taking a leisurely walk in our neighborhoods. Now, with every trip outside the house, we gear up to protect ourselves like soldiers against COVID. Mask, disinfectant, maybe even rubber gloves. It's unlike anything we've collectively experienced in the 21st century. But the truth still stands even after the pandemic. When the million dollar companies stop releasing solidarity statements, when Instagram influencers stop posting videos and photos at the protests, when the news stops broadcasting the thousands of worldwide demonstrations for black lives, your black artist friends still have to gear up to protect themselves. Mask, sanitizer, maybe rubber gloves, and a fully charged cell phone. But it's 2020 now, and it's time to make a change. Here at ISC, we are committed to devoting our art, advocacy, and other resources to dismantling systems that perpetuate anti-blackness, racism, and white supremacy within our organization, our industry, and our city of Los Angeles. With the guidance of Karen as our Artistic Associate for Social Justice, ISC will be providing education resources, supporting the People's Budget for Los Angeles, promoting social justice arts organizations, and collaborating with other theater companies to fight against anti-blackness. Our new play development process will center and uplift black voices. We will support organizations and companies that are committed to this work through our platform. We reaffirm our commitments that our stage, backstage, audience, and staff must reflect LA's diversity and that we will pay all of our artists and theater makers. All of this information and more can be found at iscla.org justice. Thanks for joining us for today's art break. Don't forget to rate and review. If you can't protest for your physical safety, consider donating to an organization, emailing your representatives, or signing petitions. And always remember, stay socially distant, not emotionally. The music you're hearing on this podcast is called Past Sadness by Kevin MacLeod. You can find this and other amazing sounds on incompetech.com.